Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello and welcome to the Writers on Film podcast. My name is John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic. And today I'm going to be talking to Jason Wood. Jason is the writer of many books, including single studies on Hal Hartley and Steven Soderbergh. He is currently the artistic director of Home, the Arts Centre in Manchester. But today we're going to be talking about his new book, which is an updated... updated... <laughs> is an updated version of the Faber Book of Mexican Cinema, and particularly the Renaissance in Mexican Cinema, which has taken place over the last 10-15 years or so. If you enjoy the episode, please remember to like, subscribe, and generally spread the word. You can also follow me on Twitter at DrJonty, but before you do any of that, enjoy the conversation. I went for the first for the first book in 2006, which was quite an odd. It was quite an odd thing. So I don't speak Spanish, and I went for quite a long time in Mexico City, which is quite a tough, tough city. And I was there on my on my, on my own, and it was it was kind of interesting getting to getting to grips of it. But I've been back a couple of times since. I went to a couple of festivals in Guadalajara. I mean, it's a it's a it's a it's a great country, but you know, as they say in the book, it's a country of of extremes. You know, it is a very violent country, but it's also a country where the people, Mexican people, are incredibly um, kind and and sharing. And um, 
you know, if you're a guest in their country, they really make you feel welcome. Reminded me of when I, I went to Poland, and and you know that sense that you know that, that it's it's there is a lot of of hardship and, and poverty, but you know they want to transcend that and and show that they 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 are good people and kind people. So yeah, it was quite it was quite quite an eye opener as a trip, I have to mm. say. Did your interest in Mexican cinema sort of predate your, you visiting, or did you visit and think, oh, I, I, I'm going to get, I'd, I'd like to know more about this culture and get into it via via film? My interest in Mexican cinema was actually a film directed by a Spaniard who was in Mexico. It was a, it was a film that I saw very, very early in my life on British television when British television showed a lot more foreign language films, and I stayed up one night. And I happened to catch a screening of uh, Buñuel's Los Olvidados, which is a film set amongst a kind of Mexican street street kids. Again, a film of real hardship, but also a film of real poetry. And there was just something about that film that really captured me. I, th- I think it was that dichotomy between cruelty and beauty. So I, I, I loved that film. And then I, I, I'm, I'm quite a big genre fan, and I, I was always interested in horror. And I remember seeing Guillermo del Toro's Cronos, when it first came out at the um, what was then the Metro Cinema in Rupert Street in London. And I just thought it was incredible. I thought it was a really interesting take on the vampire film. I thought it was really kind of political. I really loved Ron Perlman, who was in the film, who I remained a big fan of. I think it was Kronos that really made me kind of think, wow, there's a lot of interesting film coming out of, of Mexico. And Kronos was made at a, quite a, a kind of pedestrian time for Mexican cinema. You know, it was, when, it was when a lot of the older brigade were still making films. Not many younger Mexican filmmakers were making films. So it was that film. And then, and then like a lot of other people, I saw Amores Pelos in Cannes. And, and that really kind of kick-started something that kick-started the idea that there was something really exciting happening there and and Inaritu is such an interesting figure because he didn't come through the traditional film school he didn't have a film background he was he was a kind of DJ that just decided to to go into cinema and I think I think there was something very bracing about the fact that he didn't come from a traditional background so so yeah those three films really uh Kronos uh, Los Olvidados Kronos and then and then Amoris Peros uh were the ones that really got me excited, I think. Yeah, there, there seems to be, reading your book, that you get a real sense that there is a fallow period in Mexico, Mexican cinema, that there's a sort of that, that early Buñuel-inspired moment and then there's and then there's sort of a lot of sex comedies and and stuff that that really isn't isn't particularly interesting and state-sponsored films that aren't particularly yes. and then you have this huge explosion mainly centered around the figures that you're that, that you cover in in depth so so taking those those figures maybe one at a time del toro uh, let, let's begin with him as a, a as a figure what do you think his main sort of contribution has been to to the explosion of mexican cinema well del toro is someone he, he's a bit like a mexican scorsese he lives breathes eats and drinks cinema i mean he's a real cinephile i mean he the only other person i've met comparative to del toro would be bertrand tavernier who, who del toro knows everything about cinema and people think of del toro quite rightly i guess as being associated with the horror genre or the fantasy genre but it isn't just those genre. i mean he he really does know everything about about cinema from from mexico um he, he studied under Heyman berto hermosillo who's one of the kind of the more traditional mexican directors but del toro really does know everything and i think what what del toro there's two things that i think are really influential about del toro i think he's managed to imbue the the fantasy or horror genre with a real kind of signature tone i mean if, if you look at the colors in his films 
you know, particularly, I think probably the Spanish language films, Pan's Labyrinth and um, The Devil's Backbone, but also something like Pacific Rim. If you look at the use of colour, he's got a really heightened sensibility. He, he reminds me of somebody a, a bit like Nick Rogue or, or Ken Russell, a kind of real visual sensorist. But the other thing which I think is really influential about Del Toro, and, and I don't think I even say this in the book, I may have done, is that I think people now think of the, the kind of blockbuster or superhero films as being films that are made with a lot more integrity and finesse than they previously were. And I think some people would trace that back to possibly Christopher Nolan with the Dark Knight trilogy. But I, I actually think it goes back further than that. I, I think if you look at what Del Toro did with something like Hellboy and Blade 2 even, you know, I, I think that Del Toro was someone that really raised the stakes in terms of mainstream Hollywood, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not sure if superhero is the right term, but uh, I think he kind of bought a a flair and a, 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 a sense of charisma and a sense of adventure to those kind of films of a comic book origin. I mean, I remember seeing Hellboy and just thinking this is this is brilliant filmmaking, you know, uh, mm. and, and I love the great auteurs of, of world cinema, but, but I just thought that this was a film with a real signature style made by somebody that really wanted to imbue material that they obviously loved with their own sense of, of daring and, 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 and adventure. And I think Del Toro probably deserves a bit more credit for how he raised the stakes in that kind of approach of comic book and genre filmmaking in, in, in general. I mean, I think, he's, I think his work in that regard is brilliant because because, you know, I guess a little bit like a figure like Steven Soderbergh, who, you know, there's this theory that Steven Soderbergh would do a film for him, an independent film, and then a film for Hollywood. But I don't think there's a lot of difference between something like an Ocean's Eleven and a kind of Schizopolis. I think they come from the same sensibility. And I would say the same with Del Toro. I don't think there's a big difference between a, a Pacific Rim and a Pan's Labyrinth. You know, I, I think they've both got the same sense of detail, the same sense of detail in terms of the visual look of the film, the characterization, the, the, you know, the storyboarding that, that Del Toro does... For, for, for those films is exactly the same as the storyboarding he would do for what some would consider a more personal film and he takes every project in, incredibly seriously so yeah I, th I think they would probably be his two greatest contributions right and I mean I think you're right about that thing about his reputation I never really thought of that before but even in terms of his choice of material he's not going for the Superman comic book he's going for the comic books which are much more to do with sort of appreciating the monstrous and and reinventing the sort of darker hero and and this has become now now nowadays with the Cruella film and yeah. it's almost become a, a cliche to do that to look at the you know a more moral ambiguous ambiguous hero i'm gonna i'm gonna in the podcast when you listen back to that you will hear a, a different tone of my voice going ambiguous <laughs> but no you're absolutely right i mean del toro's always said he's he's he's, he's often more interested in the monster mm. than, than he is in in the hero and you know argue, i mean I, I really like the hellboy character because he is a kind of ambiguous character you know he comes from hell he's he's he's, he's full of contradictions and failings and i think that's what makes him more more interesting and i think that you know a lot of people like the kind of anti-hero and i think del toro is exactly the same with his interest in the monstrous characters and i, and I think if you look at if you look at his films and, and you look at the kind of monstrous characters he's created you know you think of the pale man in pan's labyrinth and mm. and 
they're just incredible characterizations, you know, and, and the Pale Man is just one of many, you know, you think, you think of the fawn in, in uh, and again, you, you think of the, the kind of villains in, in Hellboy 1 and Hellboy 2, and they're, they're just so brilliantly and vividly realized that you, you can see that that's where his interest really lies, I think. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, even in The Devil's Backbone, where you have the ghost sort of trailing this stream of blood during the Spanish Civil War, so it almost looks like a red flag. It's, uh, yeah. you know, the, it, there's nothing casual or incidental about the monstrous. It's all, it, it, it seems to hold hold a genuine significance. So moving on to Quaron, you're going to have to correct any of my pronunciation. No, my, my, I'm a non-Spanish speaker, so my, my pronunciation is uh, equally fragile. <laughs> okay. We'll just drop in like somebody else's uh, yeah. somebody else's pronunciation. Yeah. Here, there's a what I got from your book, what I got from sort of my own watching of Quaron's movies, is the sense that there was a real possibility that that he could be a sort of Mexican Ridley Scott. He could have gone into Hollywood and just kind of disappeared and and produced amazing movies, technically technically brilliant, but no more Mexican than you know, G.I. Jane is a British movie. Uh, and he kind of doesn't do that. I think that's that's a really brave decision. Well, I mean, do, do you think that's, that's you know, is, is, am I getting that right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the other thing about these Mexican directors, and, and, and I know we're going to go through them, there's a kind of, the kind of, big four if you like but the other thing with these Mexican directors they're all incredibly proud to be Mexican you know it's for, for them it's a real badge of honour you know it's a real point of principle you know they recognise the contradictions in their country they recognise the kind of failings of their own film institutions um, you know Coron especially has been very critical of some of the kind of state sponsored cinema and in Cine which is the Mexican equivalent of the British Film Institute you know he's been quite quite outspoken but it's because he 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 wants a better cinema for his country and and you know when when Coron like Inaritu and Toro you know when they've gone to make the films in in Hollywood they've quite often taken their sensibility with them you know I think there is an intelligence to the films that they've made in Hollywood but they've also quite often taken their crew you know mm-hmm. um, Del Toro would often work with with Navarro Inaritu would often work with Prieto uh, and Coron would work with his own cinematographer so so they would take a lot of their their key creative personnel with them to 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 make the films and you know, Coron has said to me that he, he feels that the films that he, he has made within America do kind of reflect a Mexican sensibility. But what they've also done, even when they've been working in Hollywood, they've stayed very active in what is happening back in Mexico. And it's true of, of, of all of the four, you know, Regadas, Coron, Inaritu and Del Toro. They've continued to be spokespeople. Sp- well, I'm going to say spokesmen because they are all men, but spokesperson would be the right term. They've continued to be spokespersons or spokespeople for Mexican cinema. But they've also continued to kind of fight for Mexican cinema, you know, better rights for creative personnel, better support and better industry uh, infrastructure. You know, they've kind of um, campaigned the the political parties to continue to fund with with vigour Mexican cinema. They've produced films by up-and-coming Mexican directors. You know, they've attached themselves to projects to to give some of these newer Mexican filmmakers coming through a kind of elevation. But I think it's also true that even when Coron was uh, 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 and Del Toro were working in America and having that kind of really good run, they, they were always thinking of projects they could go back and do in their homeland. And obviously Del Toro didn't go back to Mexico, but he, he went back to Spain with with, with the, the, the Devil's Backbone and Pan's, Pan's Labyrinth, which he kind of counts as Mexican productions. Obviously Coron went back more recently 
and, and made Roma, which I'm sure we'll talk in more detail about. But he had been involved in producing other films. You know, he was involved in his son, Honas's film, Year of the Nail, or Año Unia. He also was involved in producing a film by his brother, Carlos Caron's Rudo y Kersi, which again reunited the Etimama Tambien stars Bernal and... Uh, Diego Luna, uh, and in, in, in a little, although he, he had actually made a, a project in Mexico, he did um, a kind of installation piece. You know, he'd continued to work with with Mexican creative personnel and he'd continued to be very, very vocal about supporting upcoming Mexican talent. And, and now he, he has finally found a project that he is going to go back and do within within Mexico. So, you know, I, I think that, that, that all of them have retained this idea of Mexican identity and Mexican sensibility. They've all, whenever they've spoken, you know, they've always spoken about how important their Mexican identity is to them. And there isn't a sense, I don't think, that they left Mexico. And once they left Mexico, they kind of closed the door on it and, and forgot about it. I think they all kind of kept one foot back in back in back in their homeland and 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 I think that what they've done for Mexican cinema in terms of raising its profile and in terms of continuing to to fight for its um visibility shouldn't be underestimated and and the other thing I'd say Jones I think that the films that they made within and I think the Ridley Scott comparison is a good one you know Ridley Scott is is someone that makes films of a certain quality which was obviously a subjective point of view but I, I think that you know whatever you think of the films of Ridley Scott they're made with a certain craft they're made with a certain attention to detail you know they made with certain very high-end production values uh are, you know are real interested in story and narrative and character and i think you would certainly say the same of all the films that the the, the free because regardless hasn't worked in america films that they've made in in hollywood or in english language productions because i'm also thinking of something like the children of men which i think is an excellent film mm. they've all been really intelligent films you know there's, there's an intelligence to them you know they're not just kind of to put it bluntly it's not obviously films that they've just gone and made for the money for the paycheck right you know it's obviously right. films that they've gone and they've made because they really believe in the material and i don't think that they're directors that are going to take too kindly to being told what to do i think that their vision and their sensibility is so strong that the, when they come aboard a project they they really kind of take control of it and make it their own yeah no i i think uh mentioning children of men i i mean even harry potter the third harry potter the prisoner of azkaban there's I remember watching that at the cinema with my with my girls. See, I have to I have to say that I went with my daughter to to, yeah. <laughs> to uh, <laughs> and loving it and loving that film and and thinking very early on this has such a feel for England. This has such a feel for wet pavements. And yeah. then when I saw Children of Men, just being blown away by it. Which I mean, Children of Men is one of my favourite films of this century. Yeah. Un, you know, undoubtedly. There's also a sense that the uh, four filmmakers, as well as going back to Mexico, as well as sort of what you said in terms of uh, bringing their crew with them and, 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 you know, there being a very much back and forth. There's also a great back and forth between them as well. This, this, you get the feeling that, you know, there's a great sense of cooperation. You know, uh, Del Toro turns up at Inaritu's door to help him with the editing for Amoris Peros, for for instance, is one incident that you yeah. bring up in the book. That that feels almost unique. I mean, I, I don't get, I don't get the feeling that. Um, well, I I don't know. Maybe going back to the seventies and Spielberg and Lucas showing everybody Star Wars and Brian De Palma, you know, ripping ripping it to pieces. Maybe a more negative example, but I, I don't get a. a, a it feels rare to have that level of collaboration between essentially competitors. They're really all really close friends. They're all very, very supportive of 
each other and, and and you're right you know they comment on each other's work they they see each other's work and i i would imagine there is a competitiveness there but i, I think it's more done out of done out of a solidarity and you know the the interesting thing is and i, and I say this in the book and i've said it before is that you know that the directors the three coron del toro and in the ones that have had the huge success but the filmmaker that they really admire is rigadas Right. You know, I think they, they really regard Carlos... Reg- I mean, they, they regard themselves as, as artists. And I, I, I don't mean that in a kind of rarefied way. You know, they see themselves as, as, as craftspeople. You know, they, 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 they take their craft really seriously. But I think they, they really see Carlos Regadas as the true artist amongst them. You know, they see him as coming from a, a probably more art house or auteur background and you know they 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 really make sure that he is included in in, in kind of all the dialogue about Mexican cinema which I think Regalas finds quite funny because the the, the films of Carlos Regalas uh, I, I think are, are very very different to those films which again shows you know the, the, the strength of depth in Mexican cinema you know I, I think you know Mexican cinema isn't just one kind of filmmaking I think it's incredibly diverse which is something that I tried to show in in the kind of update of the book you know the the, the diversity in Mexican cinema but you know Regalas is is the it's kind of from the Tarkovsky school of art house, very serious art house cinema. I mean, I, I also think that Regadas is quite possibly a, a genius, but uh, but I, I think that Coron del Toro and uh, Inaritu, I, I think they envy is the wrong word, but I, I think that they they see Regadas as working completely on his own without any kind of commercial imperatives, without any need to satisfy. You know, the films of Carlos Regalas are genuinely independent. They're not made with a certain box office in mind. They're, they're quite often made with one or two independent producers. So, you know, that there isn't that there isn't this need to be making the film for an audience. And I think if you work in that way, I think it must you must have a great sense of freedom, which isn't to say that the other three don't work with a sense of freedom, because I think they do. I think that they're making films not necessarily to come achieve a certain commercial or, or box office um, revenue. I think they're making the films because they believe in them, but there obviously must be, you know, stu- the, for, mo- for the most part, they're studio-funded pictures. There must also be a certain pressure to deliver certain audiences, and, and I think that they see that Regadas works in a way which is completely independent from that, which is why I think that, you know, Quaron re- re- returning to Mexico to make something like Roma, I think was probably an, an attempt to, to to make a film which is more in, in the slightly personal regadas mode and and i think that you know the, the next project which inaritu is doing which which he's working on at the moment will probably do something something similar but you, you you're absolutely right i mean the, the friendship and camaraderie amongst them is very genu- genuine and you know when I was doing the follow-up book it was very much and they're all very generous people I mean I'm, I'm not just saying this to try and curry favour I mean you know I've interviewed lots of as I'm sure you have lots of famous directors and for the most part the experience has always been pleasant and pleasurable but the thing I'll say about you know Del Toro, Inaritu and Corona is they're, and, and Regal, they're incredibly genuine and generous people and they've been very mm. very good to me and very kind and very supportive and you know they've 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 all reached a certain level of fame where they have assistants and PAs and people surrounding them as, as all creative talents and directors do once they reach a certain level of you know Oscar winners if you like Right, but you know, I would I would send them an email and they'd reply. You know, I I was I I, I think they really appreciated that I tried to do something from the cinema of their country, and that gave me a certain direct route to them. But you know, just going back to the idea of their friendship, they're all very clear that they would you know, and they're all very busy. They they made it clear that they would take part in the second book as long as each of them was in it. You know, that right. it was very clear that you know Del Toro was yeah, I think I can be free. 
is Quran free and Inuritu free. So so once I was able to say, yeah, everyone's going to, then they all said, of course, yeah. We'll, we'll. So so there was also a sense of, they. I think they wanted to make sure that none of them were going to be left out, which is why I was very keen that the cover had all of them. But I was also very keen with Faber that the cover also had Regadas, because I think he's, you know, he is undoubtedly possibly the lesser known, but I think he's also the one that kind of pins them all together, really. So I really wanted to make sure that there was an image from a Regadas film on the front cover as well, as ones from Dotoro with Quran and Inelitu. Given that uh, Regadas is potentially the lesser known out also for our listeners, where, where would you point someone who hasn't uh, hasn't seen his films and is not familiar with his work to sort of introduce introduce him? I think Regadas is quite, you know, I mean, I, I think Regadas is made, let's see, Hapon, Battle in Heaven, Post Tenebras Lux, Our Time. You know, he's made four films. I think that I've missed one. The film set in the Mennonite community. Five films. And um I think Silent Light. I think I think you could make a very strong argument that four of those films are masterpieces. And they are made with such an attention to detail. Uh, I think also Regardas is a filmmaker that really thinks about not just how a film looks, but how it sounds, you know, the use of mm. sound on his films. But they're 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 certainly not for mainstream audiences. You know, they, they deal with fairly heavy moral and spiritual issues. I think also, like, you know, Coron mentioned in the short preface to the book, you know, Mex- Mexico is quite a violent society. I think regardless, his films deal with that. They also deal in a very frank way with sex and, and, and sexuality. So that, you know, that there isn't really one of his films that you could say this is the easier entry. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, I guess if someone listening wanted to check out one of his films, I think probably Silent Light is is the one which is probably easier to immerse yourself in. It's certainly one with the least sex and violence. It's very much inspired by the Danish filmmaker Dreyer, uh, uh, and, and it's about a relationship. But it's, it's a film that requires a leap of faith because something happens in it that you need to just kind of go with, which again is inspired by Dreyer. And I don't I don't want to spoil it, but I think that would probably be the one to start with. But, you know, when, when, if you're watching a film by Regadas, you need to be prepared to be challenged intellectually, which doesn't mean the films are not pleasurable because they're so brilliantly made, but they, they are certainly very, very different to the films of Koran, Koran in, in Eloto and Del del toro you know they 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 you know they they be considered real kind of quite serious alter and art house cinema and and i kind of think that when you label something a very serious art house film i sometimes think that can be a dangerous thing thing to do because that there is humor in the films of regalas mm. undoubtedly mm. you know there are things that are funny and he's a very funny man you know he has a very strong sense of humor so i, I think to just kind of label them these austere kind of rigorous things that you have to force yourself to sit through, I, I think does the films an, an, an injustice. But you, you certainly need to be prepared to pay attention and you certainly need to be prepared to not necessarily be given a kind of quick fix of entertainment. But, you know, I, I, I genuinely consider the films to be quite brilliant and in their own way quite unique. And, you know, we spoke about the other filmmakers that these these directors have all kind of supported and, and Carlos Regadas has been a, a kind of long-time producer and executive producer for another Mexican filmmaker who's in the book called Ama Escalante, who I think is one of the, the other really interesting kind of younger generation of Mexican filmmakers and, and Regadas has produced a number of his a number of his films. And the films of Ama Escalante, uh, like the Regadas films, they're a little bit more kind of auteur driven. But the last Ama Escalante film would be a really good one for listeners to check out. It's called The Untamed. And yes. it's more of a genre film. Yeah, I mean I, I would describe it as a kind of loose 
homage to Andre Zuwalski's possession. You know, it's a you know if people are thinking, mm, why would I watch this film? Well, it's about a monster which is kind of sexually pleasuring men and women in this Mexican village. And, and I just think it's a brilliant film. And, and, and I think if you watch something like The Untamed and you kind of think, well, Carlos Regadas kind of went to bat for that film, you'd immediately see the connection between the two films and the two filmmakers. Yeah, there seems to be that sort of... There seems to be a sort of thread that connects all these filmmakers of, of a, a sort of openness to the fantastic as well. You know, you've got that in a very extreme sort of a generic thing... Uh, with Del Toro, but you've also got, in terms of uh, Regadis, with, uh, you know, the strange horned creature of light in yes. uh, post-Tenebrous looks. I mean, I would almost, if I was to encourage people, which I do, to, to watch a Regadis film, I would maybe, not in terms of technique or the, theme or necessarily, but in terms of sort of viewing experience, maybe compare him a little bit to David Lynch in the sense that you're not going to get a conventional you mm. know film film, but you are not going to get something which is, I don't know, the Bellatar end of art house where you're really going to have to sit down and learn the rules of the film in order to enjoy it. I think that's a really good comparison, actually. I think that's spot on. You know, especially with Post Tenebras Lux, which, which, you know, every time I watch Post Tenebras Lux, it gets better. You know, I think that is a film that really repays repeated viewings. And I think the Lynch comparison you've made is, is as I said, spot on. I think there's a there's a kind of playfulness to that to that film, yeah. um, which is humorous, but it is also saying, you know, sometimes rules and conventions are there to be defied but and denied and ignored but you can kind of do it in a in a fun way and i think regardless does that certainly in post anniversary slots i think he absolutely does that you're right we're gonna we are definitely going to move on to the to the newer filmmakers and the, the the next wave that are coming through but i just want to finish this sort of roundup of the big four with inaritu who is who as you say comes from a really unconventional background in terms of a filmmaker and and uh, and has, has achieved sort of the similar heights and he and and really he's perhaps the person who who maybe has that first breakthrough film with Amorish Peros which I think showed at Cannes but it showed at one of the sidebars I think it was a Critics Week sidebar if I'm not not mistaken or was was it Kanzan? No, I think or? you might I think you might be right yeah right and that seems to be like almost like a, a year zero for a, the new type of is that is that a, a correct sort of way of looking yeah. at yeah and, and the interesting thing with it, I mean Amaris Pados just felt like something incredibly new I think it also helped that it had Gal Garcia Bernal in it who became the kind of poster boy uh for for, for Mexican cinema you know and there had been other films in Mexico before um, from Mexico in Cannes before that a uh, Kronos showed in 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 Cannes and and you know and and Coron had made Solo con tu pareja before he met Etimama Tambien. But I think Etimama Tambien came out quite shortly afterward, after Amores um, Pelos, you know, a year or so after. And I think it, it gave that kind of double whammy, you know, those two films taken together, again, both starring Gael Garcia Bernal and Diego Luna, the other really big star of Mexican cinema. I just think that those two films together really made people go, okay, wow, there's something happening here. And as you know, you know, critics or curators or even audiences they're quite often looking for the next thing and i think in you know around that period 2005 2004 there was this sense that there's some really interesting stuff coming from mexico and as you know once you have one or two films it tends to inspire other filmmakers to kind of follow in their wake and the film that the thing that mexico has always had even when state funding was withdrawn or it's always had very good film schools, you know, uh, and, you know, uh, uh, and it's always had 
really good training facilities for filmmakers. But I think the interesting thing was it with Inaritu, as you've touched on, as, and as I said earlier, he didn't come through any of that. You know, he was an autodidact. He was a, a DJ. He was more interested. He was more attuned and, and known for kind of working with sound. And I think Amadeus Pados is such an interesting film because for me, that is a film which is really about sound. You know, I think most people are surprised when you think of Amadeus Pados, you think of the dogfight sequences and you kind of, uh, you almost feel wary of revisiting it. But, you know, I've revisited it a number of times and you don't actually see anything. You don't, you know, the dogfighting, you, you, you see blood, but it's all in the sound. You know, mm-hmm. Amores Palos for me really is a film which is about a really creative use of sound. It's it's all in the soundtrack. And I think that really goes back to Inaritu's background. And I think it also really goes back to the way that he approached it from a really kind of independent perspective. And also because, you know, as I mentioned with Regadas, because Amores Palos was independently produced by independent financiers, there was no state involvement. You know, there was no state saying, we don't want this level of violence. We don't want this kind of depiction of Mexican society. You know, we don't want, you know, he he was able to make something which was kind of truly independent, which which kind of goes back to that notion that you mentioned, John, of the kind of new wave of uh, American independent filmmakers in the 1970s. And I think there is an element of that with these Mexican directors, both in the work that they make and in that kind of sense of solidarity that, that you mentioned. Mm. But I, I think that within Inaritu, he, he was so full of ideas and he was so full of what, what the possibilities of the medium were that I think once he made Amadis Pedos, he was always going to be somebody that, that was going to want to go off. And, you know, not the sense that Mexico couldn't contain him, but there was always a very clear view that he wanted to, if you pardon the cliche, paint from the broadest possible palette you know he worked yeah. he wanted to he wanted to work with, with with budgets to achieve his vision he wanted to he wanted to work with um the best facilities the best crew the best actors because you know he he he, he wanted millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. His work to be seen on the biggest and and broadest canvas, but the thing I admire about Inaritu is I don't think he ever diluted his his vision, you know, and I, and right. I think something like The Revenant for me has a lot of similarities to a, 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 a Morris Palos both in terms of its subject matter and in terms of just the the very technical brilliance with which it's with, with which it's executed. You know, I, I think Inaritu is 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 a, a genuinely brilliant and daring filmmaker who who very much like del toro and corona and regardless has kind of pushed the envelope of what's available in filmmaking you know i think that these these directors have 
have kind of progressed the medium. You, you know, I, I, there's there's not that many other filmmakers that you you can say that about. And and I think Inarritu is incredibly ambitious in 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 the right sense. Hmm. You know, he he's someone that just wants to he he just wants to continue to 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 to, to try and make films which which as i said test the boundaries of of the medium but but which also deal with very pressing and pertinent subject matters i i i, I you know i don't think inner is somebody that could be contained or controlled by the hollywood production system i, I just think his vision and his passion is too strong too strong mm. for that mm. i also i'm also really interested in the way that he there is so much technical adv- adventurism in the sense that you know that uh, with amorish peros they use the bleach bypass technique which you you detail in because you have a chapter on the making of the film and then he seems to kind of like okay done that and discard it you know i'm not gonna <laughs> i don't need that anymore I've, I've done it for a couple of films and then I'll, I'll i'll go on and also the fact that the you know they're doing long takes they're doing these things which which nowadays is almost become again it's it's influenced so many other filmmakers and tv shows yeah that um they're moving on but if it was just a technical stylistic experimentalism there'd be a limited interest but it's the fact that the content the narrative the characters are so interesting as well it's not that you know it's uh, we brought up weirdly scott earlier and he is a superb stylist i totally agree but he's also kind of only as good as a script he's got yeah whereas with these guys they are writing their own stuff as well as directing and that auteurism seems to be the root of their success or their continued success yeah, I mean, I, I think again, you've hit the nail on the head. I think, I think that with their films, there is this sense of um, formal daring and experimentalism and, and technical brilliance. I mean, if you think of something like Gravity, which, which just when that came out, you know, that film just was it blew people away. But I, I think, but there is also this. In, they, I think they managed to ally that with a really strong sense of character. And, and again, I'm going to labour it now that you've, now you've mentioned it and it's stuck in my mind. I, I think that's something sim- that was similar with the American filmmakers of the 70s, you know, Friedkin, Lumet, Pakula, you know, who are making quite often quite political films. But I think those films had a stylistic brilliance, but they were also underpinned by brilliant characterization and brilliant scripts. You know, again, school, you know, you think of Scorsese and his collaboration with Paul Schrader. You know, these were filmmakers that were interested in the possibilities of the medium, but they also wanted to take audiences on a journey in terms of the, the narrative and the narrative trajectory, but also the characters that they were asking you to invest 120 minutes or 90 minutes or whatever the running time with uh, and i think that that you know what underpins all of these films is this sense of character i mean if you think of birdman you know in an otis film you know michael keaton character is, is basically pardon my french an asshole but, <laughs> but you become incredibly invested in him you know because he's so brilliantly so brilliantly written but also so brilliantly played by Michael mm. Keaton, you know, and I think that was also interesting, the way that, you know, Tarantino's always been given credit for kind of rediscovering actors. I think that what, what Inovitu did with Michael Keaton, who at that time was not at the best point in his career, the way he kind of brought him back, w- w- was just brilliant. But, but you know, I, I do think that they're all interested in not just having films that take you somewhere in a technical sense. They want you to be invested in, in the characters. And just to digress really briefly, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why Roma was so successful. And I think Roma is a really important film for a number of reasons. I, I think it's obviously the film with which Cuaron returned to Mexican productions. You know, when you think about uh, Roma, it's an almost three-hour film in black and white in a particular Mexican dialect. It's a film that had an unknown in, in the central role who was nominated for an Academy Award. But I think Roma is also really important because I think a lot of people 
forget the role that Roma played, but Roma was the first kind of Netflix film to not just be invited to festivals, but to win major prizes. You know, mm. I think Roma really changed things for Netflix. But what Cuaron also did, Cuaron was the first director to really say to Netflix, okay, look, I love the fact that you've given me this creative freedom. I love the fact that you've given me this budget. I've delivered to you awards and festival prestige, but I want my film on a cinema screen. Yeah. And Roma was the first film, you know, uh, and Netflix had worked with other auteur figures, you know, Bong Joon-ho and um, the Karen brothers uh, and others. But Roma really changed things from an industry perspective in that it was the first Netflix film that went into cinemas and not just on the Netflix channel. So I think Roma's a really important film for that reason. But just to go back to what we were talking about, just to prove that this isn't just a long, lengthy digression, I think Roma was also an important film in the same way that something like Parasite was an important film. You know, when Parasite won the Best Picture Oscar, you know, Roma obviously was up for that and should have won. I think Green Green Book won and Roma obviously should have won, but Roma did win Best Director. You know, uh, the, the, the lead actor was nominated. Uh, Coron, who shot the film himself, was was nominated for one, the best cinematographer. But I think Roma, alongside Parasite, was a film which really changed audiences' perspectives of watching films with subtitles. Mm. You know, Roma was not just a critical and cultural and awards success. It was a commercial success. You know, that film was seen by a lot of people, both on Netflix and in cinemas. So I, I think that something like Roma kind of paved the way for Parasite which really mm. broke down the door because that did win the best picture, you know, for a foreign language film. And then he did have Bong Joon-ho in his acceptance speech saying that, you know, the one-inch subtitle shouldn't be a barrier to audiences. And that's all true. But I don't think that would have been possible without without Roma. And and this is where I bring it all back together to prove that I hadn't just gone off on a... And I think <laughs> that the strength of Roma isn't just the fact that it's black and white. It isn't just the fact that it's a film about class and society. So it's a very political film. But I think you've also got at the heart of Roma a very human story. You know, I, I think that the, the story of the, the maid looking after the children and, and, and I think the sequence, and I don't think this is spoiling it for anybody because it, it's not a spoiler and I'm sure a lot of people listening will have seen the film. I think the scene where the maid saves the children from drowning is just one of the most incredible things I can remember seeing in recent recent cinema you know and, and I think if if you watch that film you forget about the technical brilliance and you just think about how that moment and that's one of just a number of moments in that film how that connects on a very humane and emotional level with audiences I think that is the brilliance of Roma you know not just the fact that it that it is shot in the dialect and it is black and white and it is about it, it's the way it connects with people on that very kind of basic level of you just think wow this is this is really what the human root of humanity is is kindness and compassion and, and a, a sort of visceral connection to cinema and it is kind of ironic that it came through through netflix because of this because you know no no film has ever uh well no that's a way too grand exaggeration but it is a film that 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 vaunts its cinemaness if if you know what i mean it's, it's even got a, a, a scene in a cinema where yeah. where the maid is is abandoned by her by her scurrilous boyfriend staying with oscars and achievement and awards i mean i noticed that you you uh, and we talked about the cover of the book already as well um you've you've got them brandishing their oscars on the on the cover and as a, i mean personally i i'm a little bit of a, a sort of anti-Oscars person as, merely as a corrective to the, mm. the way it gets argued about on Twitter basically. Having said that I always watch them and I always care passionately about who wins and who loses but yeah you really wanted to underline that you know I mean I remember Chariots of Fire winning 
the Oscars and Colin Whelan sh- shouting, the British are coming, the British are coming. Well, I mean, the Mexicans came yeah. and conquered far more yeah. than the British did after Chariots of Fire. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing, I mean, in all honesty, it's, it's interesting because I think the directors, they all say in the book that winning the Academy Awards wasn't, they, I mean, I'm sure it was very nice and I'm sure they like having the awards, but they've all said, you know, that the winning of the awards wasn't necessarily, they didn't necessarily think of it of the, as awards for them. They saw it as validation of their nationality and they saw it as validation of their country. And I think they realised that, that having these awards would give them more power in terms of being spokespeople for Mexico and Mexican cinema. They're not particularly, my experience of, of the directors, they're not particularly ego-driven. I, I think it was Coron actually, that, that said, you know, yeah, it's, it's nice to win an Oscar, but it, you know, I, I, I don't think they're at home polishing their statues but I, I think they do realize that it gives them a power and a and a visibility um you know I, I think that that's what they recognize that it that it gives them and as i said i think they see it as an award for their country also you know you have to remember the relationship between mexico and america which has always been fraught with difficulty and especially in the era of trump you know where where trump was building the wall and making racist and derogatory comments about Mexico. You know, Mexico is a, sun- a country which has always existed in the shadow of America. And I think that these awards proved that it was coming out of the shadow. I mean, the front cover, if I'm being honest, uh, you can understand. I mean, w- when, when the first book came out, there was never going to be any discussion that the front cover was going to be Gal de Garcia Bernal uh, because they knew it would sell copies. Right. And I, and I think that with this, with this cover, there was a sense that the, and I'm not disagreeing, the publisher wanted the, the pictures with the directors with their Oscars on the cover because they knew that it might attract readers possibly that weren't, perhaps, you know, that maybe weren't in, as interested in Mexican cinema because it was Mexican cinema, that, that they're interested in films that were kind of high-profile films that had won awards. And, and I have no no problem with that. But, you know, I, I did say to, to Faber, and they're, they're a great publisher and they, they, you know, they've been very good to me. I said, you know, it... I think the directors would be disappointed if it was just them on the cover. I think they would want to see some of their compatriots on the cover. Mm. So, you know, it, it was always going to be a kind of montage sleeve that would have some of the other filmmakers as well. And um, and I certainly said to Faber that, you know, the big three wouldn't be happy if there wasn't an image. Carlos Regalas didn't want his image on the cover. He's, he's quite shy is the wrong word, but he's, he's not very publicity seeking. But right. I think the other directors would have been thought it very strange if there wasn't an image at least from a from a regardless film so we struck a, a happy balance but yeah i mean you, you're you're right i mean the idea the brits are coming i think for you know the last ever since you know Coron won with 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 gravity you know the, the the kind of visibility that these directors have achieved president of the jury in in can multiple academy awards you know in, in Aritu, a multi-award winner corona multi-award winner you know del toro nominated a number of times and finally won for the shape of water and and one big and you know as i mentioned earlier it, it isn't just the directors that have won you know the last kind of 10 years or so or maybe slightly less six or seven years of the american academy awards and i think you're right to be slightly dubious of the academy awards i mean i mentioned green book winning over roma i personally don't think we should set too much in the academy awards i mean i think it was uh, I, I think it was almost more important the fact that something like the shape of water won the audience award at toronto and roma won i think the golden lion at venice you know i, I think that their awards that would probably mean more to the filmmakers but I, I think i think the fact that mexico has so dominated the academy awards just in terms of visibility and as i said the last five or six years you've had prieto navarro you know gustavo Santuala, the um, composer, you know, they've all just continued to win, you know, yep. and, and, and and not just won once, 
successive wins, successive nominations. You know, I, I, I'm sure that in the Trump era, he would have hated that. You know, I remember he hated he, he hated it when when Parasite won. You know, his reaction was, oh, "What the hell is this?" You know, our our our, our big award ceremony and a film from Korea is winning and, and he would have had exactly the same attitude to the Mexicans winning so I think it's fun for that reason I think it's fun that it kind of, of chili gets under sauce. the skin right wing yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a bit of a that's a bit something picante something uh yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. So let's let's talk, uh, move our attention to the to the new wave of of young filmmakers who are coming out. Obviously, the big four have have lots still to offer. They're by no means over, but you mentioned quite a few in the second part of the book. Now, I'm gonna I'm gonna fess up. I'm I'm familiar with Michel Franco, and I'm familiar with Amal Escalante. I've seen maybe i think i've seen two of escalante's films the untamed that you already mentioned the heli which is uh, absolutely yeah. extreme and hellish vision of the mexican drug wars yes. um highly recommended I, I i would add but um but not for the faint of heart certainly i it struck me as a uh, as a uh, antidote to that sort of i don't know uh, slight com- commodification of the drug wars in series like narcos where you've you, it sort of becomes you know almost like a computer game of elaborate ways in which people can get shot you know whereas heli oh man so i just wanted to i think heli was very much intended as an antidote to that right you, you, you're, you're exactly right i mean that's what it i think it wanted to show what the drug wars were really like and there's another film miss bala which does something similar but heli really does go much further in terms of looking at the reality and the collateral that these drug wars cause mainly on the working class communities where the wars take place yeah, absolutely. You you really get a horrible sensation of, you know, of being in the midst of it. And and there are scenes there that you you don't want to you don't necessarily want to watch again and you certainly don't want to yeah. experience. I guess my question is a little bit similar to the one I asked earlier about the Regardus, which is sort of like people who are not so familiar with with these filmmakers, where where would you begin and and what would you recommend? Well, I think again, you know, the the, the film that Michel Franco who 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 you know is He's got a new film coming called New Order, which I think is going to be quite divisive. But the other thing I was really keen to try and do with this book, and it was a genuine intention, there were two things I wanted to do. I, I wanted to, you know, I mentioned earlier that the diversity I wanted to explore. And, and, and you know, cinema that, you know, I, I think that cinema is an ecosystem from any country uh, you know if you look at cinema from england you, you know you you could argue that you need the um the period dramas and the kind of kingsman etc but then you also need the ken loach and the, the the mike lee and then you also need the newer generations of coming through you know like aline khan who's just made a brilliant film called after love and and you need joanna hogg uh, 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 uh and you need the young black filmmakers like Remy Weeks with, with his house, you know, you, you kind of need that broader vision because I think we, you know, we, we've come, we're beginning to realise that, that cinema has to be much more inclusive, both in terms of people that make it and the audiences that it's made for, you know. So I think there's a really interesting dialogue going on uh, at this moment in our existence uh, uh, around that. And it's, I think that's very necessary. And, and what I wanted to do was I, I wanted to try and find the Mexican filmmakers that were doing other things. So I was very keen to have some documentary filmmakers. I was very keen to have some Mexican filmmakers that were more from the kind of regadas art house school and kind of essayists, you know, filmmakers that weren't necessarily just working within a narrative tradition. But I was also really keen to try and have more women filmmakers because, you know, I, I think as well as that dialogue 
you know, there's a lot of dialogue around diversity in any cinema, you know, around ethnicity, class, uh, you know, and I think a lot of Mexican cinema does is quite often set within working class communities. But there's also a lot of dialogue about, you know, the need to support and sustain films by women. And and with the first book, I was really keen to try and interview a filmmaker called Marissa, Marissa Sistach, who made a film I like very much called Perfume de Violetas. But it just proved impossible to, to to for various reasons to get an interview. So in the end, I didn't, I wasn't able to interview many women filmmakers, but I interviewed quite a lot of female producers. And it's interesting that in Mexico, a lot of the producers were women. Uh, Marta Souza, who is one of the producers of Amadas Pedos, Rosa Bosch, who who's one of the great figures uh, who helped immeasurably with this book who's del toro's long uh, was long del toro's longtime producer and berta navarro berta navarro again worked a lot with guillermo del toro she's also berta navarro is one of the the kind of great figures in mexican cinema uh, she's uh guillermo navarro's sister so guillermo navarro who worked with del toro nominated and won academy awards but it seemed that there was there was a lot of power in the production sphere in mexico that were women but that it, it it seemed quite difficult to find mexican female filmmakers so i was very keen to try and find films by and interview women directors from from mexico and that that was one of the really big criteria behind the second volume and again i tried and failed to get marissa sistach there were a few others that it just didn't work out but I was really pleased that I got to interview Lila Aviles. I think Lila Aviles is one of the brightest new voices in Mexican cinema. Uh, Lila Aviles made a film called The Chambermaid, which, which I, I just think is an incredible film. I think The Chambermaid is almost, if Roma was the A side, then The Chambermaid is the B side of the of the single. You know, I don't know if you've seen the film, but for, for listeners, it's about quite a, a lowly maid who works in a very high class hotel in Mexico City. And it's very much from the perspective of the workers in the hotel you know it, it's a film which is really a parable for mexican society and, and the hierarchical structure and the chasm between the haves and and the have-nots and it's a really interesting film the way that it's all shot through glass you know it's a lot of shots through windows it's a lot of shots of reflections and i think that lila Raviles is, is is just an incredibly smart filmmaker with an incredible vision so i was very keen that that film was was included there's another mexican female filmmaker called mariana chinillo whose work is not that well known here. And the difficulty is, is that if you're writing a book, as you know, you, you're hoping that people are going to read it. And again, it goes back to the cover. You know, if, if you put Del Toro and et cetera on the front cover, someone might pick it up. Unfortunately, if you were to just put films by filmmakers who might not have even had work released here, it's it's going to be more difficult to get people interested. But I, I almost wanted, you can almost think of it as fishing, that the big four were the kind of bait, but, but I wanted to kind of hook people in and then say, oh, and read about these. So, you know, another filmmaker I wanted to include was Everardo Gonzalez, who's a kind of documentary filmmaker but very much his work very much straddles fact and fiction. You know, you can watch things and you think, well, is is, is this a documentary? Or uh, And I like his work very much. And also Alonso Ruiz Palacios, who, who is someone that has had some success outside of Mexico, but he's just made a really interesting film, which is on Netflix, which I recommend called A Cop Movie. Oh, yeah, I've really, seen that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, because you, you think you're watching a documentary and then you realise you're not watching a documentary. So I think he's another one that's doing something really interesting with form. So, you know... I really wanted it to be a, 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 a balance in the interviews between people that everybody would know, you know, the ones we've mentioned, people that some people would know, 
you know, Ama Escalante and Michel Franco, and then people that people would discover, you know, Lida yeah. Raviles, Mariano Chileno, Everardo Gonzalez. I got slightly lucky because the chambermaid, the Lila Raviles film, was released by New Wave, who also released Carlos Regalas' Our Time. And the film did well, you know, it played at festivals and, and it achieved a certain kind of visibility. So that helped in terms of having Lila Raviles involved. And I think anyone with a passing interest will probably be, be aware of, of, of the chambermaid. So I did want to try and untangle the idea that, like a lot of other film industries, the Mexican film industry still has a way to go in terms of parity between the amount of men that make films and the amount of women that make films. So that, that was something that I very wanted to kind of touch upon in the book. I, I think there's a real sense, as I got to the end of the book, of sort of just, well, first of all, collecting a list of films that I want to catch up on and find and 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 ferret out but also the sense that this 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 isn't isn't going to be the final edition of the book that there's going to be in 10 15 years time you're going to have to you're going to have to do a new edition because there this momentum feels like it's continuing yeah and and you know unfortunately as soon as you do a book there'll be you know i've seen you know in can directors fortnight in can and in critics week in can there's there's six excellent mexican films which which at the time of writing the book, you know, it's very much completed over lockdown. These films weren't made. So, you know, there's a, there's already a six or seven other films that I'm thinking, okay, you know, people are going to read this. Now the book's out, they're going to see this and think, well, why aren't they in it? So already there are films that are coming that, that you think, okay, well, they'd be good for the next volume. <laughs> the, the, the next, you know, the next part of the book, I'm actually writing a book with Del Toro standalone book with Guillermo Del Toro, which will be coming out through Faber. And what, what I'd quite like to do is I, I'd quite like to do standalone books with, with Del Toro, Regadas, Coron, and Inaritu. I mean, that would be the long-term dream. Going back to the old version of the Faber and Faber sort of interview book. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. That, those would be brilliant. I love that. I love those books. They were, uh, and I mean, your book follows a sort of oral history structure as well. Yeah, and and that's something I really like. I really like the oral history structure, and and I must mention. I mean, I, I dedicated the book to Walter Donahue, and and people that don't know Walter Donahue, Walter Donahue is really the person responsible for Faber. You know, the, certainly the film books and all of the kind of Scorsese on books that that they they were all Walter. I mean, Walter, I think, is the unsung hero of British publishing you know he was Vin Vendor's story editor on Paris Texas you know he right. goes back a long way with cinema and he, he's someone that Krista Nolan and Stephen Soderbergh they always speak to Walter Donahue about um about their films and, and I like that oral history you know I, I like the fact that you know I, I think that books about filmmakers should really be about the filmmaker and it should be in the words of the filmmaker which is why I'm quite keen on I like transcript books because mm. I, I really think that you, you get to hear the filmmaker and what I try to do with this but I try to make my questions as short as possible so that you're not listening to me you're listening to the filmmakers because I think that's what people want to hear but um, I love those I mean I can probably in my shelves I've, I think I've got all of those favour all of those favour books and right. uh, they're all excellent and they all give a really interesting insight into into the filmmaker and filmmaking at a particular time in history and how approaches to filmmaking has changed and um, you know the Del Toro book which has been slightly delayed because he's finishing his remake of Nightmare Alley you know I, th I think that will be such an interesting book because as I mentioned right at the start of this he's just such an authority on cinema 
you know, the, pro- the problem with working with Del Toro is he's so busy. You know, he's finishing mm. Nightmare Rally, but he's already got six or seven other... I mean, he's a workaholic. He's already got six or seven other projects on the go. So it's finding the time to pin him down. But it, mm. it's something that I'm excited about. And, um, you know, the, the other great thing about doing this book is I think that the, all, the, all the people in it realised that it was done with the right intention. It was done for a lot of love for, 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 for Mexican cinema and the filmmakers. It was done to try and help shine a light. I think I got lucky. You know, most of the things I do have terrible timing, but I think I got lucky with this because the timing was, was right. And, you know, uh, uh, and, and I've been lucky and been able, been able to maintain a good working relationship with these directors. And, you know, I, I don't think I'm kidding myself. I think they've all written to me and said, we really appreciate what, what you've done. For and, it, and it's always gratifying to get that. I mean, as you know, and I think this podcast is, is such a brilliant idea because film books don't necessarily sell huge amounts of mm. copies. And I think people's approach to reading film books has changed slightly because, um, you know, the internet and access to materials really changed things. But, you know, I, I do still think there's a place for books. And I think we have to guard against only having a mainstream culture, whether it's a mainstream film culture or a mainstream culture in general. And I do think there has to be room for people to read about culture, which is slightly outside of the of the mainstream. But I know that for Faber, who are publishing less books, you know, it's it's harder to cover costs. You know, it's harder to, you know, it, it's harder to sell the kind of copies that they used to sell. But I also think there has been a bit of a renaissance. You know, I think one of the things that lockdown has done, it's connected people again with artifacts. I think people mm-hmm. like physical media now. You know, they like buying a record or, or a book. They like buying, um, sorry, a, a record or a CD. They like buying Blu-rays. You know, Blu-ray sales have, have kind of gone up. And, and I think that they, they've also gone back to the idea of the idea of owning a book as being something which is quite quite desirable. So, yeah. you know, I, 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 hope, I hope the book does, does well and repays Faber's faith in it. I spent, uh, uh, I think, a year on Kindle just reading on my, as soon as I got my Kindle. And now I've gone back to not just books but hardback books <laughs> sort of like I, I never used to read hardback books but now it's like no i need to i need to atone for my kindle sins with proper heavy books speaking of which what film book would you recommend i found i found this question really hard actually um and the reason is is i, I i'm someone that really enjoys reading film books i mean I, I tend to at the moment i'm reading um the big goodbye which is the um i've forgotten the author but it's another favorite yeah, about about kind of Chinatown. Future guest of the pod. Yeah, I mean, it's and that well, you can tell him. I think it's an incredible book. I mean, it's an incredible book. It is. Isn't and obviously, it? Chinatown is a difficult film at the moment to talk about and write about because of Polanski. But but that you know that's a book which isn't just about it is about this kind of changing of the guard in in hollywood uh, it's a brilliant it's a brilliant book so i found it really hard to pick one book and without wishing to be greedy i kind of narrowed it down to three books i narrowed it down to paul cronin's book on Werner herzog guide to the perplexed which i think is brilliant i like colin mccabe's book on jean-luc goddard which i think is brilliant because i'm a big goddard fan unfortunately i've picked all books by men for which i do apologize but in the end i've gone for the story of film by Mark Cousins. Mark Cousins, yes. Now, the reason I've gone for this book is that Mark Cousins is someone I, I know a bit and he's a really passionate advocate for cinema. But because I do read a lot and because my whole background is in cinema, I really like it when I discover something which I can use as a learning tool. 
And I can honestly say that from reading the story of film, I learned a lot. You know, I pride myself on my cinema knowledge and I don't say that to sound ar arrogant. You know, I work in cinema, so, I, I, you know, I kind of live and breathe cinema. But from reading the story of film by Mark Cousins, I, I learned about aspects of cinema that I didn't know. And, and particularly uh, an era of Japanese documentary filmmaking in the 1970s. And I discovered a film called The Emperor's Naked Army Marches On. And this whole raft of Japanese documentary filmmakers that was completely unknown to me. And I, and I think Mark Cousins has also been very good in talking about how women have been written out of film history. And I've discovered through Mark's writing uh, a whole raft of female filmmakers whose work I didn't know, not just Vera Chilliova, who made Daisies, but, you know, filmmakers from all over the globe. It's a truly international book. And as I said, I think anybody that reads this book will have their understanding and passion for cinema both broadened and reignited. Yeah, I totally agree. I second that. I, and I, I just think it's such a virtual, virtuous circle that, you know, you, you read and then you you end every book with a list of other other films to watch you watch those films and then you want to find out more about those filmmakers or that particular time in history and you go back to to you root out another book and it it just it has this this relationship the last thing i wanted to mention was the the fact that when you were talking about fishing with the 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 big three or the big four Mexican yeah. filmmakers. I think that would be, that's an example of those filmmakers would actually like that idea. You know, that yes, that's exactly, we want to use our fame and our Oscar pictures to get people to buy this book, to find out about these other filmmakers who are coming up behind us and, and towards us, you know. That's exactly what they do. And that's why, you know, they were very keen that we don't want this to just be a book about us. We want this to be a book about our industry and our fellow and co-filmmakers and that, that I think that was what very much appealed to them as I said you know they're, they're all multiple Oscar winners but I, I've always found them refreshingly ego free and um, as I said they, they see this book as a film about where they come from and where they began mm. and, and I think that that's why they were able to be so supportive of it and I'm very I'm, you know I'm very very grateful to them. Well, I'm, I'm very pleased to recommend it. It's a, a superb read and it will, I think it will, you know, if you know a lot about Mexican cinema, it will still tell you a lot. And if you don't know that much, it will open your eyes, open some doors. Thank you so much, Jason, for talking to me today. Thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure. And as I said, I think that what you're doing with this podcast is such a brilliant idea and uh, it's been great coming on and having a really uh, insightful and entertaining conversation about it. So my thanks to you, John. fascinating conversation that was uh, my thanks very much go to Jason Wood and to remind you his recommended book was Mark Cousins the story of film his own book the Faber book of Mexican cinema is available everywhere and as you can probably tell I highly recommend it they'll open it'll open your eyes to quite a few few new directions that you could look at and if you already are au fait with Mexican cinema there's still plenty to learn thanks very much for listening thanks very much also to Elliot Atkins for the music uh, included in the podcast and I'll see you next week
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.